I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Ireland to receive over half a million additional Pfizer vaccines and the government insists its targets for vaccination can still be met. As things stand, uh, we are still on track to hit uh, four in five adults who want to be vaccinated to have a first dose by the end of June. But has the public been left frustrated by all the chopping and changing about the various vaccines? On our first panel tonight, we're joined in studio by Fianna Fáil TD Jim O'Callaghan, Professor of Experimental Immunology with Trinity College Dublin, Kingston Mills, and via Skype by Monaghan GP and Medical Director of North Dock, North East Dock, Dr Ilona Duffy. And later in the programme, mandatory quarantine under fire as bookings are left on hold. How is there not enough capacity in the system? And should vaccinated arrivals be exempted? And how hard has rural Ireland and its farmers been hit by the pandemic? We'll be hearing from a dairy farmer in Waterford and independent TD Michael Fitzmaurice on isolation and the need for broadband. Get in touch via Twitter with the hashtag TonightVMTV. We're joined in studio by Fianna TD Jim O'Callaghan, the Professor of Experimental Immunology, Immunology excuse me, with Trinity College Dublin, Kingston Mills, and via Skype by Monaghan GP and Medical Director of North East Doc, Dr Ilona Duffy. But Kingston, I want to start with you because we're often accused of being negative and looking for bad news. How good is the news today of this massive extra supply of Pfizer vaccines before the end of June? It's fantastic news. Uh, the Pfizer vaccine is a top vaccine. Recent studies in the US um, very published about 10 days ago, where they looked at people who've been vaccinated with the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, both mRNA vaccines, and they followed them for 13 weeks after immunization. And they, they, they tested them weekly to see if they had the virus. And the outcome of that was that 90% of people given the vaccine were protected against infection, their potential to protect against transmission after two doses, and 80% after a single dose. That tells us that even a single dose of that vaccine is conferring significant levels of protection against infection and transmission. And any worries about blood clots or things like that? No, there, there, there have been some blood clots, but, uh, but not the type of blood clots that have been seen with the AstraZeneca or Johnson & Johnson back vaccine. It's believed that they're you know, part of what would normally occur in the population, which occur all the time anyway. So there's no connection between the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines and, and the mRNA vaccines in general and blood clots. Okay, but we're hearing from government is now recalibrating its approach in relation to the rollout of the vaccines. I mean, can, do you share Stephen Donnelly's confidence that four out of five adults will be vaccinated, at least have one dose by the end of June? Well, that's the aim. And if you look at where we are you know now... it's the aim, but I are know. you confident it'll be met? I, I think I am confident, because if you look at where we are now, we've administered 1,076,000 doses. That's nearly 20% of the adult population over 16 years of age. We're going to get a huge amount of more vaccines in over the 
the next two to three months. Obviously, there were concerns about AstraZeneca, but like the government made a sensible decision in opting more for Pfizer than the other vaccines. And like we're expected to receive in 2.1 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine in quarter two. And now with the news today, that's another 545,000 on top of that. So we'll have 2.6 million of them. So I think we'll hopefully make it. But listen, we may have to recalibrate the administration of the doses of the vaccine in light of what's happened with AstraZeneca. I'm conscious of what Kings said there in terms of the fact that the Pfizer vaccine is 80% effective after a first dose. So I suspect that's what the government are looking at at present to see whether or not we should extend the delay between the two doses of the Pfizer vaccine. And that may provide greater protection across the board and allow us all to get back to our lives are normalised, which is the ultimate objective of all of this. Well, indeed, but Kingston, how happy are you with the idea of extending the period of time between the two Pfizer doses? Absolutely. I think it's absolutely essential that we do that now um, because um, all the data is suggesting that one dose is giving pretty good protection and it's much more sensible to give as many people as possible a single dose than to give two doses to a small number and not the second, a single dose to others. So I'm absolutely in favour of that. In fact, I think it could be extended beyond 12 weeks. Um, the, the antibody levels which are the critical ones of protecting, stay up pretty high for several months. And even if they decline slightly, they still, they still get protection by what's called memory. So I, I think it's a very prudent move to, to, to actually extend that gap between the primary and secondary immunisation. Elona, how welcome is this news, given the confusion that has been caused in the previous 24 hours by suddenly the AstraZeneca vaccine not been available to the under 60s and Johnson & Johnson deciding in the US that they weren't going to ship the vaccine for the time being to Europe? I think it's great news because in the last few days and especially yesterday and early today, we've been receiving just dozens of phone calls to the surgery patients concerned about, number one, will they get the vaccine that was planned? People who were to be vaccinated this week, realising that that wouldn't happen and wondering, would we be able to vaccinate them? Because as everybody knows, we are continuing to vaccinate the over 70s with the mRNA vaccines. And the other problem, though, is that it has created huge vaccine anxiety. And even today, I'm, I'm still here at work tonight because I'm trying to contact people. We've had a lot of people refusing the vaccine in our over 70s group, which is very new because up to now, they've been really grabbing it with both hands and saying, when can I get it? And can I bring along my wife or my husband as well if they have one? And now we're having people saying, I'm going to wait. I'll wait and see what's happening. So we're actually moving on to our next group and trying to contact at-risk people and hoping that they'll uptake on the vaccine for us. Elona, are you finding that there's a certain amount of vaccine shopping going on that they say, I'll have one particular type of vaccine if you have that, but I won't have another? I think absolutely. I, I, it's only natural. There's been so much talk in the media, every radio station, every television station, every newspaper you open is talking about AstraZeneca. And as we're aware, that is the vaccine that a large bulk of people were to receive in the community setting, both through hospital clinics and the, the, regional, the regional community clinics. So now they're kind of feeling, well, there's something wrong with this vaccine. I shouldn't be getting it. And we have a group of patients from 60 to 69 who are being offered it, who are also kind of wondering, well, is it really safe for me? And I think that message has to come out a lot clearer uh, with regards to the real figures and the data on the vaccine and how safe and what benefits it can give. 
Kingston, is there a danger with this, what's been called abundance of caution, that the public health officials are undermining confidence in the vaccines, particularly given that this AstraZeneca vaccine seems to have done a magnificent job in Britain? Yeah, I mean, it has. And the, the, the instance of, of COVID in the UK has gone right down. And it has to be said it has gone down here as well in, in the settings such as the hospitals and the nursing homes. So the vaccines really are working. But to come back to the hesitancy issue, I think the 60 to 69-year-olds are going to be the next group where you're going to start seeing hesitancy because you know they're being told that they can have a vaccine that's not going to be given to an over 70-year-old and it's not going to be given to an under 60-year-old. And they're the one cohort who are deemed suitable for it. And so I think what... Sorry, is that necessary or fair to the AstraZeneca vaccine? Has there been too much of a rush to actually shut it down on the basis of some very, very limited examples of blood clots caused by it? Yeah, and that and the, and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. The Johnson & Johnson, it was, it was one in a million um, cases of the blood clotting in the, U in the US. And with the AstraZeneca, it's probably six or seven in a million. Um, but there is some evidence emerging to suggest that this is real. In, that, in other words, that it's not by chance that the association between the vaccine and the side effects. So I, th I think people need to have to, um, you know, benefit, weigh up the benefit versus the risks on this. And for somebody over 60, if they get, if they get SARS-CoV-2, um, their chances of getting, um, you know, a serious COVID disease and dying are quite high. So that's the, that's, that's the downside of getting COVID-19 compared with getting the vaccine. So that risk is still much, very much in favour of the vaccine versus the, the um, getting the disease. But, but there, there's something I think that also needs to be aired, and that is that, you know, one of the issues that I have with, with some of the vaccines are not just the issue of the clotting, but the issue of efficacy. And we know that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines have 95% efficacy. I've given you the figures of what they do again, and that's against disease. And, and they, all the vaccines prevent severe disease. But in, unfortunately, with the, with the variants emerging, the South African um, variants in particular, and the Brazilian, the, the data that came from a small trial in South Africa showed that the AstraZeneca vaccine did not prevent um, or had 10% efficacy against the South African variant. So, you know, if you're going to give so a... Does that suggest then that Britain could run into enormous problems given that it has almost exclusively relied on that vaccine? It could. And it could, it made, and it could be the same story for us if we have over-reliance on that vaccine. So I think, um, uh, you know, what I'm, what I'm getting around to saying is that, you know, th there has been a, a sort of resistance to what we call mixing vaccines. In other words, if you have the AstraZeneca vaccine first, they want you know, to give the AstraZeneca vaccine second. There's no scientific reasoning behind that. There are regulatory reasons behind it because it's been regulated and approved as two-dose vaccine um, to be given. So, sorry, so could it be an insurance policy against the variants that people who've had the AstraZeneca vaccine, and there are many in Ireland, should be given a different vaccine for their second shot? It, it would also um, decrease hesitancy if people thought that um, they were able to be given a second vaccine which had higher efficacy. And also the, the other big issue is that um, all of the companies are now in the race to get a second version of their vaccines on the market. So Moderna already are in phase one trials with a new version of the vaccine which, which takes care of the South African variant. So if they're first on the market along with Pfizer, then they should be the vaccines that are used um, for the boosters. So, you know, high efficacy, taking care of the variants. So that's the plan for the future, which is good in that we will then overcome the problem because there is nothing sure than we will have issues with the South African Brazilian variants. 
Jim O'Callaghan, this government seems very much to be enthralled to what Enfit and NIAC tells it should, should do. Should it be braver, perhaps, in saying things like, no, we want to mix the vaccines in the way that Boris Johnson's government in Britain actually did when it came to extending the length of time between shots? Yeah, I think one of the downsides of the pandemic and the state's response to it is that we have allowed for there to be two sometimes conflicting sources of authority from the state, the government and NEFET. And in fact, there shouldn't be any distinction between the two because NEFET are there to serve and advise the government. But I also think we need to recognise that if the government made a decision like that, Matt, and it went against the advice of NIAC or against the advice of NEFET, like part of the problem in Ireland is if people make decisions where there's risk involved and it goes wrong, they subsequently get pummeled by the media, by other politicians, by the legal profession. And so in Ireland, we're very much predisposed towards not making decisions which contain risk, unfortunately. Like my own view, and I'm conscious Kingston knows much more about the vaccines than I do, but like we're not in a position at present to be very choosy when it comes to which vaccine we'll take. I know there are very many people in Ireland who'd be happy to take the AstraZeneca vaccine. Obviously, most of the vaccines we've administered in Ireland, nearly 800,000 of them have been Pfizer, and it appears to be more effective. But I don't think we should go down the route of presenting the AstraZeneca vaccine as being some dangerous vaccine. That's but the Danish are not going to give it to anyone There the are future. very particular reasons for that. Denmark managed to acquire a huge amount of Pfizer vaccines. That's the first reason they did that. Secondly, today, Denmark announced that they have the epidemic, as they called it, in their country under control, which I was interested to read, considering that their figures today were 660. And this, in our country, it was 430 cases today. So they're in a different position. But listen, I think we need to recognise that we can't paralyse ourselves through too much caution. And it is not a dangerous vaccine, AstraZeneca. Like it was approved by the EMA, it's been approved by other regulatory authorities. There's a risk in terms of, you're talking about one in a million or three in a million in terms of the impact it may have. But if you look at Johnson & Johnson in the United States as well, 6.8 doses have been administered, 6.8 million doses have been administered, and there have been six cases of blood clots, and one person has died. So like, we need to put this in perspective as, a, as opposed to paralysing ourselves with fear about something that may happen. Okay, so there's one thing that I want to pick up, Kingston, with you that Jim said. Denmark says they have it under control with a much higher rate of daily cases than we have. Do you regard us as having the situation as under control? I think it's in a much better position than we were in. in and the real index is not the number of cases per day, because that's been sort of inflated now partly by the testing of asymptomatics. So a lot of those cases don't have symptoms. That doesn't mean they can't transmit the virus, by the way. So it's, there's still a problem. But the real data are the number of people in hospital. And the number of people in hospital is now dramatically lower than it was um, a month ago. And that's significantly good news. But of course, uh, that's in the, in the time of, of severe restrictions, which are now going to be relaxed. And it remains to be seen what will happen when the restrictions are further relaxed, whether those numbers will start increasing again. I think the really good thing is that the numbers of cases infections in the hospital setting in the healthcare workers and the nursing homes, which has been the biggest reservoir amongst the biggest reservoirs of infection, have, have de decreased dramatically. Okay, Ilona, there's something I'd like to ask you about the Pfizer vaccine as well, given that we heard it has to be stored at very low temperatures. Have the GPs had any difficulty in actually using it in any great volumes? Would you worry about if you have to do many more using the Pfizer vaccines? I think when we first agreed to sign up to vaccinating the over 70s, it was um, agreed that it was good to be the AstraZeneca vaccine. And then quite rapidly that changed and it, the guidance was changed. So we realised we were going to be using Pfizer and Moderna, both of which have to be stored in a frozen capacity 
Fryzer has a short time frame that it can be defrozen and used in with, within days. So that has created a lot of logistical problems with regards to deliveries to GPs and then the planning of their clinics. So there have been issues in that the deliveries haven't come on time or deliveries have been cancelled or not enough have come. And that continues to be a problem. We would hope that that will improve. But I think what we also got to realise is that approximately 43% of all vaccines delivered have been done so by general practice. That can't continue into the future in that kind of volume because we've got to get back to opening up our practices and letting patients with acute illness see us. And to date, we've worked weekends, we've had to cancel daytime clinics, and we do need to be able to keep our practices running and see the people who need to be seen. Jim, Thonisha Leo was tweeting tonight about easing of restrictions from the 4th of May. What sort of restrictions do you think will be eased, given again, we keep being told about the abundance of caution? Well, I think we need to look at what the science said recently. It referred to the fact that the evidence indicated that only 0.1% of transmissions occurred outdoors. So we need to concentrate on that. It is cruel that we still don't allow young boys and girls to play sport outdoors in this country. That has to stop. We need to allow them We're to play We're not trusted to meet with people in our own back yeah. gardens. Listen, we need, this is another issue about risk. We've got to recognise that when we do ease restrictions, the numbers are going to go back up. Now, we hopefully will not have a situation where the numbers in the hospital are going to go back up because we've vaccinated and protected the vulnerable people at present. But like, we've got to recognise we're going to have to live with a level of risk in this and we're not going to be able to eradicate COVID from our environment in the way some people suggest. But I would like to see outdoor activity permitted. In particular, I'd like to see outdoor dining, I'd like to see outdoor sports. And I think we just need to recognise we can't go on living like this and the pandemic will come to an end, the restrictions will come to an end. We just have to ensure that we manage it carefully so that we can get back back to normality without to ensure that it is irreversible as well. Ilona, no specific details as yet, but restrictions in the north, it seems there will be an announcement tomorrow as to their lifting. Uh, what do you think that impact will have on border regions such as yours? Well, no doubt we're going to see more travel uh, across the border because if things open up there, we'll see people going there. But I think for once, I'm probably less concerned about that because their levels of COVID have, infection have really dropped. And uh, as we know that all along the border counties, Monaghan, Louth, uh, Donegal had high figures compared to the rest of the country because definitely we were seeing some transmission coming from the north to the south where they had exceptionally high rates. I'm hoping that we won't be seeing that similar happening at uh, this time because their rates are so low and we'll benefit by being close to them with their lower rates because of their high vaccination rate. Kingston, Enfit is still very worried about an easing of the restrictions. But what about Jim's point that even if the numbers go up, is the key number the hospitalizations, ICUs and deaths? Is there a way for us to take a risk now and open up on the restrictions that have been in place now for months? Yes, absolutely. And, and that's around um, testing, antigen testing and lamp type testing. And I agree with Jim about the outdoor activity in the sport. We've got to get um, um, you know, underage sport back as soon as possible. Um, and in a prudent way that doesn't involve the sort of some of the scenes we saw last summer when sport was opened up for a while and and they were they, you know there were there were events that you don't want to see of like invasions of pitches etc during during matches so I think if, if the I think it's, it's incumbent on the authorities that you know the GEA and the, the rugby authorities and the others to to police this and to put in place good but, but measures. what about the people who say we'd be making all the same mistakes again or is this time different because of the vaccination so program lockdown forever no, it's, it's, it is different. It's, it's different because of the vaccine, first of all, but it's also different because we have 
realize that there's a benefit of testing, using antigen testing. For example, Leinster Rugby are going, are, are going to trial a, a 2,000 spectator if they're, if they're given permission. Yeah, excellent presentation. Yeah, I got yeah. that from them last week. And that's something that we need to be looking at. We also need to think about the arts, getting people back into theatres and areas where arts are being performed. And we can't go on But this is going to be like different this. than last summer in that you, know. You, know, you, you, will, you will put in place measures which are, which are safer. Yeah. I think it was rushed back a bit last summer and people weren't, hadn't put in place the appropriate measures. I think if, if they do that with the testing and regulations, it can be outdoor activity, definitely. Outdoor and we have the vaccination sports. now. And well, the timeline is, if four out of five are vaccinated by June, does that mean a large number of things can open up from July? Well, I would hope so. I mean, you know, you know, I think that four or five would be, I'd be delighted if four or five are immunised by June. That would be great. Fantastic. Let's hope. We'll have to leave it there for now. Our thanks to Dr Alona Duffy and Professor Kingston Mills. Jim O'Callaghan will be staying with us because after the break, mandatory quarantine bookings on hold. How is there not enough hotel room capacity for the people? And should elite athletes be allowed an alternative option? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. Fianna Fáil's Jim O'Callaghan has remained with us, but we're also joined now by Irish Times business columnist Mark Paul. And Mark, can you explain, in a country which has so many shuttered hotels at present, that we have a problem with actually sufficient space in the hotels for people looking for mandatory quarantine bookings? Well, the government uh, signed a contract with just one hotel company, TIFCO. Um, so, you know, they, they don't have the option of going to just any hotel. It has to be a TIFCO hotel. Um, and, and it's sorry, how many hotels do they have? TIFCO have about nine hotels, I think. Um, some quite large hotels. They have some hotels out by the airport. They have some hotels in the city centre, in, in Temple Bar. They have hotels in Clontarf. Um, so I, I, I think the problem has arisen because um, uh, they didn't predict how quickly the numbers would ramp up, and they, did, they didn't they didn't think that they would that they would fill the hotels as, as quickly as this. And a lot of that comes from the fact that I think um, the entire policy of mandatory hotel quarantine I think was born out of panic. If you, if you think about you know back as far as uh, uh, as recently ago as January, the teach the Tánaiste, Leo Varadkar said that the entire policy was unworkable. I don't think really at the heart of it that the government really truly believes 
in so this policy. So why did they change its position and introduce it? Because they were under such an enormous amount of political and public pressure throughout January and throughout February when virus numbers were going through the roof. Um, and I think they had to protect their left flank. Um, they, were, they were under enormous political pressure from the Social Democrats, from Sinn Féin, from other left-wing left parties. I think they were also under huge pressure from the Zero Covid campaign. And I think um, um, my sense of it is that the government panicked at that stage and felt they had to bring in mandatory hotel quarantine um, in order to try and um, um, relieve some of the political pressure. And I think that's a, a bad basis to bring in a policy. And like Jim, that. it seems that it's the Fianna Fáil part of the government which panicked more, that Fine Gael ministers were not in favour of this measure, but it was forced through by Fianna Fáil. No, I don't agree that the government panicked. I don't believe that it was just a one-sided decision either. If you think about it, people in this country don't have freedom of movement. I can't go to Limerick tomorrow unless it's for an essential purpose. Other people can't travel around the country. So I think it is not unreasonable to expect that if people are coming in from other jurisdictions where there are variants and there's a high instance of the disease, that they'd be required to quarantine. But then for why a not of the time. UK? So, given that that was the biggest concern about the South African variant, we heard from Because Kingston the incidence Mills. of the disease in the UK is low at present, and that's why it's not included. But if you're coming from the UK, Matt, you still have to quarantine at home for 14 days. There's now recognise that this is a short-term measure. It is a draconian measure. We can't sustain it in the long term. How short-term? For how long do you visit? Well, I would hope that we would be getting rid of this by July, being frank with you. I would hope that this will not be necessary after a period of time, short period of time. It is not sustainable for a long period of time for a country such as Ireland to have mandatory quarantine. But I think what we will see happening is that countries in Europe, once they get their numbers under control, like we know that tomorrow Belgium, Italy and France are going to go on the list. But hopefully when they get their numbers under, under control, they'll be removed from the list, same as the United States. So it is a draconian measure, but it is a well thought out measure. And I know there's criticism about it now, but could you imagine if I was in this studio in September, we got the numbers down, but in fact there was another surge and people were going back into hospital. So why didn't you do it last year if it's such a good idea? You were told by Enfit last May to do it and then you didn't do it. And yeah. then suddenly this year you do it at a time when the vaccination programme has been rolled out. You may... And you also have vaccinated people coming into the country who have been told you have to, know, you have to quarantine. Well, first of all, you may have forgotten Finval wasn't in government in May last year. But secondly, you make a valid point about the people who are vaccinated. This system, if it's to work effectively, it has to be proportionate and it can't be arbitrary. We can't be making up rules as we go along. But you are sure you're allowing a French women's rugby team to come into the country this weekend. If the Leinster rugby team goes away for the European semi-final, it'll be allowed back well, in. And yet we have people who are uh, newborn children who can't come back in without spending two weeks in quarantine. Yeah. And you have vaccinated people who can't go to funerals. Yeah, my view is that people who are vaccinated should be exempt and should be permitted to come in. But I think the scheme, in order for it to operate effectively, and I'm conscious there have been about five or six challenges to it already, none of them have proceeded beyond sort of early points, but I'm conscious that it won't stand up to scrutiny if it's seen to be arbitrary or if it operates in different way for different groups of people based on no justifiable grounds. Mark, why not just stick with it and actually just try and protect ourselves? Or what are the arguments against the idea of sticking with it? Well, the benefit has to outweigh the cost. I mean, we can't just pretend that there is no cost to having a mandatory hotel quarantine policy. I mean, obviously there is some economic cost. I don't think it'll have a huge impact on tourism this summer. I don't think there's going to be a lot of European tourism this summer anyway. Um, but there is also a civil liberties cost and we shouldn't just sneer at that or we shouldn't just um, 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 turn away from that. I mean, we're a liberal European country. We are the only country in Europe that has mandatory hotel quarantine. Um, the UK has mandatory hotel quarantine, but we have an open border with the UK. But we 
we don't have mandatory hotel quarantine on the same countries. Um, so as long as we have an open border with the north, um, if the variants that, you know, that, 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 that mandatory hotel quarantine is supposed to prevent, if they get into the UK, they can just flow over the border from the north. Um, so it's not at all I'm certain that it will have any appreciable effect on the outcome of the virus in Ireland. And if, if, if it doesn't, well, then you ask, well, then why are you doing it? They're doing it, I think, for political reasons as, as much as they are for public health but reasons. But could there be political repercussions with the rest of the European Union and with the European Commission and also with the United States and particularly with business interests in the United States who we want to invest here in Ireland? There has also, there has, I think there's already been repercussions um, uh, uh, with other European countries. We've seen it. There was a story in the Irish Times um, yesterday, or, or I think it was yesterday about um, foreign embassies, the French embassy, the Italian embassy, they've already been onto the government saying why. I know the Israeli embassy was, all, was also onto the government. Um, I think the, the, the policy was originally brought in in January and it was only going to be for, um, I think, people who didn't have a negative PCR test. And then they stepped it up another tier and it was going to be if you were coming from Brazil or from South Africa. And then they stepped it up to another 16 countries that start, I think, in about six hours time. And now it looks like they're stepping it back down. There's exemptions for sports now. It looks like there's going to be an exemption for anybody who's vaccinated. That's actually quite interesting, I think. I think if it is kept in place, it may be kept in place to encourage Irish people to get vaccines. When it was originally proposed by Tony Holohan on May the 8th last year, he proposed it in the context that he was afraid that Irish people were going to go on holidays in Europe at the time and he wanted to eliminate all non-essential travel. And he placed mandatory hotel quarantine in that context. It would stop Irish people going out, not to stop other people coming in. Now there's a vaccination programme rolling out across Europe. So I think that context has changed a little bit. Um, and as I said already, it was a, it's a policy that was badly thought out I think, and that's why we're seeing so many difficulties with it now. Okay, that's the point that last summer, I'd say many of your constituents amongst them decided to bunk off to Portugal or Spain for a holiday and brought the illness back with them. That Tony Holohan and others, what they want to do is ensure that people don't take a summer holiday this year because they won't want to have the two weeks mandatory quarantine on the way back in. Well, now foreign travel isn't permissible. You can't travel unless it's for essential purposes. So that reason is now being provided for. It's no longer an excuse but, for people but, to But go. that won't be in place for the summer, surely? Well, it's in place at present. I'm sorry, haven't we seen lots of people coming in in recent weeks, non-essential travel, are claiming things like they were getting their teeth done in Tenerife or other medical procedures. I know, but medical procedures are a legitimate reason for a person to travel. They're essential travel. If they are legitimately yeah, if they are done, legitimate, they're not I know, just making but they them are, up. You know, I can't go into an assessment of people who have travelled as to whether each one of their journeys has been legitimately essential. But listen, I accept what Mark says, that this is a draconian measure, that it interferes with civil liberties. But I believe it's a short-term solution. It's a short-term process. Like vaccination is going to get us out of this complete nightmare. It's going to get us out of mandatory hotel quarantine, particularly from other European countries and America. And once the vaccination program is rolled out throughout Europe and America and in other countries around the world, I think you'll find there'll be a very small number of countries left on the list which require mandatory hotel quarantine. But I suppose if we don't have it in our repertoire, Mark, uh, Matt, and we know how quickly variants and this disease can move. If we don't have it on our statute book available to put a country on the list, we're in a very weak position to respond to new variants. Would you ever apply to the United Kingdom? If you had an issue with the Brazilian or the South African variant becoming dominant there, and well, despite their vaccination programme, would it be applied to the UK? I wouldn't rule it out, but obviously it couldn't apply to Northern Ireland. Well, 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 then, um, well then it can't apply to the UK. I mean, well, I mean, so the Northern uh, uh, Ireland is treated differently by the UK in many uh, areas. Sure, now. sure. But, but, but if, if the U, if, as long as we have different rules on travel to the UK and as long as we have an open border, I really don't see the point in doing mandatory hotel quarantine. It's like 
insulating one side of your house and leaving the windows open on the other side mm-hmm. um, and the, the, the variance will get in anyway all we'll have done is, is, is impinge upon civil liberties and we've also got to remember Ireland is a nation of emigrants and immigrants and like we have 600,000 people living here from other countries imagine the emotional toll on those people to find out that actually if you want to go see your parents your elderly parents or your family in Portugal or in France you're going to have to do a quarantine people but may not be able to people who argue we should have done what Australia or New Zealand did or that they were rooted tough in making sure that only small numbers at any one time could mandatory quarantine or else they couldn't come into the country and that helped them drive down their numbers. But Australia and New Zealand have mandatory hotel quarantine in the context of a full-on zero Covid policy. We don't have a full-on zero Covid policy. We had 450 cases today. The government and Neffet and Tony Holohan and the public health officials have laid out at length why they think a zero Covid policy wouldn't work in Ireland. We're right in the heart of the epicentre of the virus which is Europe and we have an open border with another legal jurisdiction, which is actually a geopolitical rival, they're never going to have the same rules as us. Um, We don't run a zero COVID policy. So if we're not running a zero COVID policy, why are we running the tentpole of the entire zero COVID argument? Should we just be stopping the airlines flying in all of these people? No, listen, we've got to realise we shouldn't, we can't completely overreact to this, okay? We need a balanced response. And I believe at present, as we're getting the vaccination programme rolled out here and in Europe, that mandatory hotel quarantine is an acceptable mechanism to use in the short term. And obviously I accept that it's going to have consequences for this country economically, socially, and in terms of immigrants and emigrants. But like the, the objective of it, the purpose of it, is to try to stop variants coming into the country. That's the objective of it. And we heard what Kingston said earlier on about variants. We don't want to find ourselves at the end of this summer, having got our population vaccinated, having got the numbers in hospitals right down, to find that when we open up and society's moving well, that variants are coming in from other countries and we haven't ability to stop it. That's the purpose of it. And I think it's sensible, but it should be limited in time. We have to leave it there for this section. Our thanks to Mark Paul. Jim O'Callaghan will be staying with us because after the break, how hard hit has rural Ireland been by the pandemic? We'll be hearing from a Waterford dairy farmer on how she's avoided burnout and also from independent TD Michael Fitzmaurice. Welcome back. So just how hard has rural Ireland and its farmers been hit by the pandemic? A report today from IFAC, Ireland's farming, food and agribusiness professional services firm, shows about a third of farmers are at risk of burnout. Mairead Barron, a dairy farmer from Waterford, joins us now. So Mairead, has new technology and broadband not actually helped farmers avoid that risk of burnout? Well, I suppose, Matt, farmers were always great to use new technology and bring it on as part of their farm. But um, just the lack of good broadband and internet connection in rural Ireland, I find myself, has made things a lot more difficult, especially now with um, COVID-19. We're all working from home, as it were. We work at home full time. But now our discussion group meetings are... um, our marts, everything is online now. And if you don't have access to the internet, you're missing out on all of that. So it has kind of hindered some people in a way. Um, Like myself, I've had to switch to many different providers during COVID because I just didn't have the internet access to do things such as Zoom call. Um, And Marie, of course, those of us who live in cities and towns do have the opportunity of going out, walking about, seeing and meeting people when we do so. How hard is the issue of isolation in rural Ireland if you're required to stick 
well, now gone to that five kilometre limit. Yeah. yeah, so I live myself here on the farm and my home then is about 30 kilometres away. So obviously I was here on my own during it all and it was difficult and there were days that you just wanted to leave and go meet up with your friends, go for a coffee or something, but you couldn't. Um, so it is difficult and it does really highlight the issues around rural isolation and especially for the older generation. Um, there's a man here actually who lives beside me who would help out on the farm during the winter and he's in his 80s and he used to always go to mass and things of a Saturday night 10 past seven on the bus and you'd see him heading down the road. But that's all stopped and he's stuck at home now every day. He ca he couldn't go anywhere. He couldn't meet anyone. His um, his nephews and nieces couldn't call in to see him. So it was, it was only for we had kind of each other, it would have been a little bit more depressing. Mairead, promises from the government today, a major new report on its future for farming. A few weeks ago, a major report on the future for rural Ireland. But how confident are you that there would be things delivered from those to make life better for people in rural Ireland? Um, they'll, well, they'll really have to pull through on things such as the broadband plan because there's no point in in enticing people from the cities to move out to the country and to work from home if they don't have the internet and the access to um, facilities such as banks and things and post offices, which are closing down left, right and centre. I mean, our local one here is due to close. So if they don't have the access to online banking, even it's going to be impossible for people because they will have to go into town then to do their banking and to do their post officing if needs be. So there's no point in the government saying we're going to do all this and have everyone move out to the country. And then all of a sudden, they're commuting in and out to town to do their essential bits. Final question to you. I mentioned the five kilometre limit has changed to 20. But are we opening up quickly enough for rural Ireland? The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. Honestly, I don't think so. Like, case numbers here have been very low. And I think in rural Ireland, again, they've been lower. I mean, we have a less chance of meeting people with COVID. I know we're taking chances when we have to do our groceries and our essential trips to the bank and the local co-op and things like that for myself. But we are careful and we're well dispersed. We're out in the country air every day. I think rural limitations should have been lifted a little bit sooner and possibly like depending on the numbers per county that should have been looked at a bit more and things such as like mass and possibly the pub for socializing it should have been eased a little bit more in rural ireland i think Mary, thank you very much for joining us here on the tonight show thanks matt 
And we're joined now here in studio by independent TD Michael Fitzmaurice and by Fianna Fáil's Jim O'Callaghan, who has stayed with us. If I can start with you, Michael, we've had today the government announcing a plan, a new three-year plan to enhance farm incomes, recently a major report on the future of rural Ireland. How encouraged are you by the apparent attempts of this government to make it a real issue for them? Well, the documents look lovely, um, but we have had so many reports over the last from not alone this government, but previous governments over the last 10 years um, with a lot of promises. But if you look at all those documents, the two documents that has been put in place, there is no budgets behind any of them. Um, in the agricultural strategy, basically it's about climate action, um, it's about sustainability, it's about the environment. They talk about forestry, for example. I'll give you one example. They talk about forestry, attaining 8,000 hectares a year. In 2016, I read the same report. It said 8,000 hectares a year. We have achieved 50% of that because of a department that's not functioning. Um, and then they talk about the environment and looking after the environment. And the new scheme, this, bear in mind that the 6,600 less farmers in an environmental scheme this year than there was, there was last year. And we're talking about saving the world. On top of that, the new environmental scheme that's coming in, the reps too, there was trumped in the time of the... Uh, government talks that was going to be the greatest thing since the sliced pan, that even money from the carbon budget was going into it, is going to be the maximum of 4,700, when the original one that people are coming out of now uh, was 5,000. We must look at this in a time match that in rural Ireland, that um, home heating oil is 100% dearer than it was this time last year when the pandemic started. That green diesel for farmers who are struggling in certain sectors is 100% dearer uh, to buy today per litre. And um, yes, that previous speaker is 100% right. We do need broadband. And in fairness, the government have said that they're going to try and up the ante in, in, in broadband. And I'll give you the example of what happened in the last year. We have a lot of elderly people that are farming um, that tried to fill the single farm payment because now government won't accept anything. It's all online. And where they may go down to the local community centre to get the help one time, they had to cocoon. They tried to do it themselves and they didn't tick a box. And now they're being cut in money from the Department of Agriculture because they didn't tick the box. And those people weren't... Unfortunately, they had bad broadband, but on top of that, they hadn't the facilities to but do it. But let me bring Jim in on that, because these documents produced by the government, is this box ticking of its own, to just to try and create the impression that you care about rural Ireland, but as Michael says, you're not putting the budgets behind it, and the promises are rehashed from many no, years ago. I, I think that's unfair. The government does care about rural Ireland, and in my own party, Fianna Fáil cares deeply about it. It's been an extremely difficult year for people in rural Ireland, probably more difficult than it has for been for people in the cities. If you look at the impact of the pandemic in terms of socialising, in terms of people trying to remain in contact with other people, it's had a very devastating impact on people in rural, remote areas. But the documents that are put out today, and I listened to Minister McConnell this morning, they, they evidence the commitment of the government to find support for rural Ireland and the family farm. And I think also the point Michael makes can't be underestimated, and it was mentioned by Mairead, is the whole issue about broadband. Like, you cannot function properly in rural Ireland unless you've got a proper broadband yeah, system. The survey that I referred to earlier found that a quarter of dairy farmers say they can't make a proper living, but it gets way worse with others. About 86% of beef farmers say they can't, and about two-thirds of tillage farmers as well. 17% so of farmers in, in the West-North-West are 
uh, is what's classed as viable. So obviously 83% is classed as unviable. And we are facing with the new cap, and we actually had a committee meeting today, Matt, on it, where on the new cap, for the first time ever when the farmer goes applying, under the new climate strategy with wetlands and peatlands, and we look at mountains in Donegal and in Sligo and in right along the west coast, even go down to Wicklow, go down to Cork, go to Tipperary, and where there's peaty soils, they are now going to try and bring in a different category for applying for single farm payment, and it's going to go under a derogation. And those farmers down the road, and you know, we've seen so many derogations. We've seen it on turf. We've seen derogation on water. We've seen the derogation on the nitrates. All of these things is a minister that has to go to Europe and get it the next time round and the next time round. And while the next cap, yeah, they'll get it. But down the road, they could be left without being able to farm. In reality, much of farming in Ireland is just never going to be viable. That a lot of these people should give up and do something else. No, Matt. Harsh as that sounds. The big problem on, 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 on the for farmers is that if you watch the two thirds of the two thirds of the money uh, went to one third of the farmers, and what you need to do is have a redistribution to get those farmers viable. Because you must remember that every farm and family, and even if they're unviable on the farm, they may have a job that's keeping them going as well. They are contributing to the local shop, and thankfully, in the last year, if you look at the local shops, I see it in, in my own area. The local shops have actually you know, gone on well because people have shopped local now um, during the pandemic. And those people are keeping a community viable. They're keeping a school open. They're keeping the butcher shop. And that's what you need to do to direct it at the areas and target it, not this big... Um, like a, a Bible of paperwork that comes out of what we're going to do, what we're going to do. But there is no figures behind it. And when we put figures behind things, we cannot say for definite. I'm not cutting it down. I welcome any town and village money that comes. I welcome all the different monies for trying to revive rural Ireland. But there's no good being a minister for small monies if the bigger picture is falling apart. Well, we just need to give it time as well. Like the documents only came out today. The government has, hadn't even been in government for a year. You know, it's the, the ministers had an opportunity to put forward the proposal. Yeah, but as Michael Give said, it. the stew document after new document, right. a lot of these documents repeat promises that have been made in the past and haven't been delivered. Listen, irrespective of what's in the document, we can't get away from the challenges that small farmers face in Ireland. And as Michael says, anyone who knows farmers, very many of them have other jobs as well, or their partners will have jobs. It's like we need to recognise that the face of small farming in Ireland is changing. And what Fianna Fáil is committed to doing is to ensure that we protect the small farm and the small farmer. But Jim, you won't protect them if you bring out an environmental scheme. This, the maximum is 300 less, even though we were told that because each one of you voted for the carbon tax, that a heap of money from that was going to be put into an environmental scheme. It is 300 euro less than it was in the previous Michael, scheme. Michael, I need to ask you, though, just in the time we've left, I mean, you were mentioning local shops have provided a service, but we heard from a raid of banks closing in towns, mm. post offices mm. closing. I mean, do you see pubs and things like that reopening when the reopening of Ireland is allowed? To be honest about it, it's the great unknown. One, like one time ago when you met a person, met they came towards you. They're back and from you at the moment. Um, there is going to be casualties in this. I do hope that a lot of those places open, but there is a... At the moment, there is a different Ireland because it's not normal what young people have to go through at the moment in, in rural Ireland. They have nowhere to go. It's not normal that a person, and especially the elderly, that's close to the church cannot go to Mass. It's not normal um, the life we're living at the moment that um, a farmer mightn't see someone from one end of the week to the other. And 
this is the great unknown in the next few months. Yeah, but I, I do think that there will be some casualties, unfortunately. Okay, well, Jim, will rural Ireland be repopulated? I mean, there's all these things, you can get cheaper accommodation, yeah. but will there be the other things, the normal things of life for them to enjoy to make the relocation worthwhile? Well, absolutely. Like, if you look at Ireland, we're completely imbalanced in terms of the concentration of population on the East Coast or in our urban areas. But listen, just in terms of what Michael is saying there, like, we see the consequences of the pandemic in terms of the deaths of 4,500 people, the 200 or so people in hospital. We don't see the consequences of what's happened to people's lives over the past right. year, people who haven't got COVID. And like that is going to be very severe and significant. And the government will need to play a huge role in trying to support vulnerable and small farming communities in the aftermath of this pandemic. Because one thing we're sure of is this pandemic is going to end and it'll end in the near future. But then there's a huge job. It's going to require work. a lot of money. Will the government be prepared to Listen, spend that in money? In fairness to the government, one thing it can't be accused of is not providing money to get through the pandemic. But that's not, huge but it's, it's after the pandemic. I know. Listen, the money will be there. Michael McGrath said today there won't be a return to austerity budgets. We recognise we've got to invest to get our way through this very difficult Matt, time. Matt, the one fear you'd have is that Ireland today is £220 billion in debt. There's... Um, it might be with the best will in the world for Michael McGrath and, uh, and the Tisha and everybody that they want to help out different areas. But when Europe brings in budgetary constraints again, we will have to basically answer the, the call. And then what will happen to the great plans that are in cost okay. at the moment? Thank you very much for that. That is all we have time for tonight. Our thanks to Jim O'Callaghan and Michael Fitzmaurice for joining us. I'll be back on Radio Today FM tomorrow, back here tomorrow night at 10pm, where we'll be joined here in studio by Antishak Michal Martin. That's for one for you to watch, Jim. Until then, thanks for watching and good night. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.